Good morning. As I look out, I also want to add my greetings. I'm also uh, so encouraged to see my predecessor, number seven, uh, Dr. Ellsworth Callis there, as, as well as Janet and also Bill and Carol Latimer, our dear friends, and my dear wife, Julie. Good to see all of you here today as well. <clears throat> the Taj Mahal is one of the seven wonders of the modern world. The Taj is located in Agra, the ancient capital of India and was built in the 1600s during the Mughal period. The great Mughal emperor Shah Jahan had the Taj Mahal constructed as a mausoleum to his beloved wife who died giving birth to their 14th child. Yes, God bless her. It took 22,000 laborers 22 years to build this massive marble structure. I've been there several times over the years and was again, again there this past summer with uh, some of our trustees who were in India to see firsthand our, one of our global partnerships and our global vision. The Taj Mahal was made of the highest quality marble in the world with over uh, 10 million precious stones inlaid into it, both inside and out. The marble is translucent to light, but is stronger than steel. Its weight is a matter of serious scientific and mathematical calculations in India. It's estimated to be about 2.5 trillion tons. The downward force of that weight uh, is truly astounding. And the fact that such a structure could be built on the banks of a river, the great Yamuna River in India, had, to this day truly astounds uh, even the highest uh, engineers around the world that are aware of it. The entire structure, it turns out, is there so solid because of its foundation. It's built on a four-layered foundation, surprisingly, of interlocking teak wood. And so perhaps the greatest wonder of the Taj Mahal is what you don't even see when you see its majesty, that which is lying beneath the surface. We could perhaps conceptualize the Christian faith as something like the Taj Mahal. Not, of course, a physical building with stones and jewels, but an even more glorious testimony to God's remarkable work, His church in the world. We're all here this morning because we've been summoned to the feet of Jesus Christ and in service to the Christian gospel. We are mysteriously and redemptively linked to our brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers of the faith that go around the world and back through time. We number far more than the 22,000 laborers who labored on the Taj Mahal. We have a number that, in fact, no one can count. Revelation 7-9, John says that he sees a number that no one can count from every tribe and tongue and language and people before the throne. Do you see yourself in that great company? This is what I want you to see. I also want to catch a glimpse of one part of that vision. I want today to see us look at the great Wesleyan tradition that we've been shaped and formed by. What is the grand Wesleyan vision of Christianity? Like the Taj Mahal, the Wesleyan movement is unintelligible without understanding the deep foundations upon which it is built, without which we would crumble and lose our identity. Like the Taj Mahal, the Wesleyan movement, as indeed Christian movements around the world, have four major foundations, 
in our case, four that I want to highlight that are unique for us, all interlocking, which provides the strength, the source, and the solidity of our movement. So I want to begin by first looking at the four foundations that we are built upon, and then explore four of our distinctives as a Wesleyan movement. One, we're built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That is the deepest foundation of all truly authentically Christian movements anywhere in the world. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.11, for no one can lay any foundation on the one that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. This is why he says in Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him. Or in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. This is the great and deep foundation we share with all Christians through space and through time. John Wesley himself summed this up in his common cause with all Christians when he said, we believe Christ to be the eternal supreme God. And Aaron, we are distinguished from the Socinians who denied the Trinity and the Arians who denied the eternal preexistence of Christ. Foundation number two, we are also built on the foundation of God's word. This is the second deep foundation which we share with all Christian movements in history. Apostle Peter in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 25, actually quotes that great text from Isaiah 40, verse 8. You know it, don't you? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. That's right. We affirm with St. Paul in 2 Timothy 3, 16, when he says, all scriptures God breathed and profitable for teaching, for correcting, proving and training righteousness. We remember what Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, 35, when he said, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. Martin Luther was once asked why he read the Bible through twice every year. And Luther replied, because the Bible is like a mighty tree and every word a little branch. I have shaken every one of those branches he said, I want to know what it was and what it meant. I hope that you are shaking every branch during your time here and throughout your ministry. John Wesley spoke not just for himself, but for all Christians when he said, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. God himself has condescended to teach me that way. He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me that book of God. Let me be a man of one book. See, Wesley wanted to be called the homo unius libri, a man of one book. So, Christ himself, the word of God, the third foundation, we are built on the great ecumenical tradition of the church. We are rooted and grounded in the communion of the saints back through time. We understand against much contemporary Christian practice that the gospel did not begin last Tuesday, we have no permission, no remit to remake Christianity into our own liking. We are not called to reinvent the faith once for all delivered unto the saints, Jude 1.3. The contemporary United Methodist Church is particularly vulnerable to this, so you must be vigilant, those in that group. We don't reinvent the gospel. We faithfully pass it down. We stand in the grand tradition of what has, which has stood through the ages, marked by apostles and martyrs, and faithful witnesses of which we have the privilege of joining. 
It was St. Vincent of Lorenz in the 5th century who coined the phrase which best captures this truth. Semper ubique et ab omnibus. That which is believed everywhere by everyone always. St. Vincent was asserting a great truth in the midst of a cauldron of seemingly conflicting challenges to the faith. The Donatist who denied Catholicity. The Arians had a weak Christology. Plotinus who denied the Incarnation. Pelagius who denied the Fall. But it reminds us that there is, really is a great tradition. There really is a core kerygma, a core proclamation which unites Christians through time, which we affirm as the people of God. It's stable. It's rooted in the apostolic witness. In the midst of the fragmented world of postmodernity, where truth isn't put on the scaffold, and we're told that all we have left is our, only t- our own tiny narratives, our own personal testimony, we're reminded that, in fact, there is a great tradition of the faith to which we have been summoned. Never forget that. We see this grand story captured in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. We see it captured in the seven ecumenical councils from Council of Nicaea in 325 to the next Second Council of Nicaea in 787. We see it defended in John Wesley's letter to Dr. Conyers Middleton in 1749. It's all too easy for those of us who live on this side of the great schism of 1054, who live on this side of the 16th century Reformation, who live on this side of just endless and profound disunity of modern-day Christianity, to forget the deep wells of ecumenical, patristic faith to which we are all built and upon which we're all built. Fourth foundation, we are built on the foundation of the 16th century Reformation. John Wesley was a child of both pietism and the Church of England. His father and mother had been born into dissenting families, and they had been quite dramatically brought back to the Church of England. The Church of England gave them their roots in the ecumenical tradition, but their pietistic upbringing gave them deep roots in the Reformation. Wesley was an avid reader of Luther. Both Charles and John Wesley had both read uh, Luther's commentary to Galatians just prior to their own respective conversions. Wesley, you'll recall, had his famous heartwarming experience uh, at Aldersgate on May 24th, 1738, while he was listening to Martin Luther's preface to Paul's epistle to the Romans. We, are, in fact, are rooted as a, a movement in the great solas of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Solus Christus, Sola Dea Gloria. Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. The first restrictive rule of Methodist Church and the, had the Articles of Religion, Wesley's canonical sermons, and Wesley's notes on the New Testament as the doctrinal standards of the Methodist movement. And all of these documents clearly demonstrate our orientation in and through the Reformation. It's therefore upon these great foundations, Christ himself, the Word of God, the ancient ecumenical tradition, and the Reformation, that the Wesleyan movement arises like a glorious Taj Mahal on the plains of of Christianity by the great flowing river of the Christian faith. It's only in this context And only with that introduction that we can really properly speak of Wesleyan distinctives. Without understanding the deep interlocking foundations 
that lie beneath us. We improperly think of our distinctives as weapons which we wield against other Christians. Distinctives should never be viewed, for example, as ammunition against the five points of Calvinism or as weapons to attack the Lutherans because we can't agree with their view of the two wills of Christ. If you think of Wesleyan distinctives that way, then you fall into the pit of sectarianism. There are, of course, real disagreements between Christians and Wesleyans around the world about many, many issues, and we can passionately disagree about those. Wesley certainly does that. We should never forget about our shared foundations. Wesleyan distinctives should be viewed as gifts or offerings we bring to the body of Christ, like breaking a special dish to a great banquet. We don't really think, I hope, that we're the only ones that have gifts to offer the body of Christ, or the only ones that really got it all right. Western distinctives are meant to be celebrative offerings, contributory gifts to the whole body, not our own private stash of weapons to use against our brothers and sisters for sectarian purposes or merely to help us in some ecclesiastical version of intramural sports. That puts us on the wrong roads. None of the gifts we offer to Christ will be complete with the gifts of others in the body. Of course, the light of Christ will bring you know, searing correction and illumination to all of our gifts, but that'll be his work, not ours, to which Paul mysteriously points to us in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. And so I now like to explore four great distinctives which I believe we offer as gifts to the body of Christ. And I believe that these gifts that we bring to the church, if they are lost, and if Asbury doesn't give them, they won't be given, in terms of the North American movement especially, if we don't really get this, and we don't offer these gifts to the church, the church will have seriously suffered losses. The first great distinctive of the Wesleyan movement is the Wesleyan view of grace. Wesley accepted gladly the Reformation emphasis on justifying grace, but he lovingly reminded the church that to equate salvation with justification was a great loss to the biblical doctrine of salvation. Wesley saw God's grace punctuating the whole of our lives and moving throughout our whole life in the whole view of biblical salvation. God's grace comes in many ways, not only in justifying grace, which the Reformation got right, but also through prevenient grace, sanctifying grace, glorifying grace. Let's look at these briefly. God's grace, Wesley argued, comes to us before we even become Christians. This is prevenient grace. It enables us to respond to the gospel. This is why we describe this as, uh, should describe it, not simply as our free will to respond to God's work, but our freed will. It's free, prevenient grace that's freed us from our bondage to sin. God has taken the first step and sovereignly acted to free us from Adamic guilt and sinful depravity, thereby enabling the human race to respond to the gospel and respond to the good news. For Wesley, all spiritual formation begins with God's prior action on behalf of the sinner. Provenient grace is the bridge between human depravity and the free exercise of human will. Jesus declared, no one comes to me as the Father draws him. That, of course, implies some act of the triune God before we even become Christians and are justified. In John, we have the text about 
how God's light enlightens everyone. God is doing something universally in the world which allows us to respond to the grace of Christ. Provenient grace is God's universal grace to the entire human race, which situates our movement, Wesleyanism, between Augustinian pessimism and Pelagian optimism. We're both optimistic and pessimistic at the same time. <laughs> because provenient grace means that which comes before, some Wesleyans mistakenly think that it only involves grace that comes before justification. But provenient grace is all the ways God beats you there. God comes to you. God helps you respond to him all through your Christian experience, all the way to the new creation. God's provenient grace is there. Wesley manages again to perfectly balance the classic tension between monergistic, God does it all himself, and synergistic, we have to do it all. Provenient grace is a testament of monergism. It's God's act. Whereas the full collaboration with God through our freed wills is a great testament to synergism. In addition to provenient grace, Wesley speaks of sanctifying grace. Just as God in Christ meets to justify us, so the Spirit of God meets to sanctify us and make us holy. If provenient and justifying grace enables you to become a Christian, sanctifying grace enables you to be a Christian. And that's extremely important to our movement. We'll see more of that later. Finally, it is glorifying grace, which enables you to fully conform to the image of Christ in the new creation. So Wesley unfolds for us a great vision of God's grace, which is rich and textured and punctuates the whole of our Christian experience, all the way to the new creation. He also developed the doctrine of the means of grace, which he defined as outward signs and words or actions ordained by Christ to convey to us Prevenient or preventing grace, justifying, sanctifying grace. Like a trail of breadcrumbs, Wesley saw that however far we stray from God, God leaves markers to lead you back to himself. It's one of the great gifts that we remind the church of. Ways to reorient ourselves to Christ. Wesley identified a number of means of grace like prayer, scripture reading, the Lord's Supper, all of these are means by which Christ comes to us in grace. Of course, all Christians believe that prayer and Bible reading and Lord's Supper are ways to sanctify us. But what Wesley understood uniquely, I believe, was that these means of grace are not just to sanctify us. They actually are means of grace to meet Christ throughout our lives, even before we're Christians. This is why we practice open communion. Because the whole point of Wesley was that the actual substance of the means of grace have no power in themselves to change you. It's the fact that they are actually windows to Christ who is the means of grace. Christ is present when we, when we pray. Christ is present when we hear scripture read. Christ is present at the table. And because of that, if Christ is present, anything is possible. And so we invite everyone to receive the means of grace throughout their experience. So not only the mean of grace, also the second is the Wesleyan view of the community. Wesley had the distinct advantage of living over 200 years after the Reformation. This allowed him to view the Reformation from a very important distinctive dis uh, distance. He could see its strengths, which he affirmed. He also could see its trajectories, some of which needed correction and needed further illumination. So he fully embraced the restoration of the Pauline doctrine of justification by faith, but as we saw earlier, 
he also saw that God's grace was more expansive than that. In the same way, Wesley realized that our view of the cross, particularly how it connects to the community, was not really sufficiently developed in the Reformation theology. The Reformers rightfully positioned us as condemned sinners needing to flee to the cross of Christ. We totally get that. Wesley affirmed that. However, notice the, the, all the great solas of the Reformation. There was no sola ecclesia. There's no church there. There's no community there. It's because all we have of the cross are individual condemned sinners trying to flee to the cross of Christ. Over time, it became clear to Wesley that even committed Christians were viewing the cross from the perspective of a solidary condemned sinner who, is, who needed to flee to the cross to be saved. Wesley saw we must not only look at the cross from the perspective of a sinner, but also look back on the cross from the new creation, along with all the saints who have gone before us. To put it bluntly, the cross not only draws condemned sinners to justification, it also empowers justified sinners into a corporate life of holiness as the church of Jesus Christ. This not only gives Wesley a doctrine of assurance, because if you're a condemned sinner, you never know if you can be saved. It also is the whole basis of what we might call ecclesial catechesis, the whole church helping to bring the whole people of God into conformity to Christ. Wesley was committed to a form of community catechesis, which is very distinctive. He understood that discipleship wasn't simply saying yes to certain doctrinal questions. That was never less than that. It had to be more than that to Wesley. For Wesley, catechism was learning to echo the entire rhythms of the Christian faith within the context of the community, the church. Wesley learned this from the patristic mystagogy model. The, the catechism happened after your baptism, between Easter and Pentecost. He united the idea with the Celtic Christian model of the class system, which put believers into small bands of discipleship bands. The leader would report to the pastor on the spiritual state of those under his or her care. They would meet and give an account of their week, sustain each other in prayer, transparently confess their sins. Members would be disciplined. They'd be taught the faith. They would worship together. They'd go out and serve the poor. This is supposed to be the natural rhythms of the Christian faith. Wesley understood that. For Wesley, this is not a program the way we understand such things today. It's an insight into the whole rhythms of faith and practice which reorients us to the triune God. So while Wesley never distanced himself from the Christocentric emphasis of the Reformation, he also understood that salvation must be the work of the triune God. It has to be the work of all of who God is, because God in himself, to quote the Puritans, is a sweet society. God calls us into his corporate life. He's the ultimate community. And our community, the family or the church, must reflect God's community. The Father creates us, calls us, and sends us. The Son translates God's to us in human terms, redeems us, embodies the mission of God in the world. The Spirit catechizes the church into the realities of the new creation, sanctifies us, endows us with discernment in God's wisdom, and empowers us for effective witness in the world. We need the whole triune God to be all that God has called us to be. Third, Third distinctive, the Wesleyan view of the holy Christian life. A doctrine of justification separated from a robust doctrine of sanctification 
has left the church in a weakened state which compromises our witness to the world, dishonors Christ, and denies the very power of the gospel which we proclaim. Wesley was first and last passionate about holiness. Today, much of the church is not holy, and there's no more important legacy than you can leave to this generation and to embody holiness once again in the life of the church. To remember again, listening to the ecumenical tradition, Nicene Creed, the four marks of the church, one, holy, Catholic, apostolic. We can't lose any of the marks of the church. And we, our generation, must re-embody holiness for the church. The great ramparts and gates and walls of holiness, which have long set the church apart, will today lie in ruins. And the world is now freely importing wickedness into the church. And this is our hour to rise up and reassert holiness in the life of the church. Wesley taught the doctrine of entire sanctification. Is that intimidating? Should be. For Wesley, salvation could never be simply God looking at us through a different set of glasses where he sees us clothed in Christ's righteousness, but actually we're still condemned sinners in bondage to sin. No, no, Wesley envisions a holy church. He understood that God's purpose in your life is not complete until alien righteousness becomes native righteousness. Imputed righteousness becomes actualized righteousness. Declared righteousness must become embodied righteousness. That's the Wesleyan vision. We do not, by the way, put grace in a dialectic tension with the law. Wesley wouldn't do that either. Rather, Christ is the new lawgiver. He actually deepens the moral call of God in our lives throughout the, through the Spirit working through us. Justification, a faith, is also not to be put against sanctification by works. No, for Wesley, justification by faith, we're sanctified by faith. They're all gifts from God, wrought in us, not through our strength, but through His mighty saving power. And our sanctification never meant that we never sin. Wesley rejected the phrase sinless perfection. This is because for Wesley, sanctification is not primarily a judicial term or forensic term. It's a relational term. It's about our whole lives being reoriented to God, the triune God. Your whole body, your life, your spirit being reoriented toward His joyful company. You're now also reoriented toward the community of God's people as well. Entire sanctification for Wesley was not some long drudge out of a life of sin, but joining the joyful assembly of those who found joy. For Wesley, if you read him, holiness is the truest crown of happiness. That's Wesley's view of it. Sin is still encamped around us on every side, but it's no longer our ally. We burn the secret agreements we have with sin in the night while we confess Christ in the day. We leave behind the agonizingly torn hearts, which always live under condemnation because sin is creeping back into our lives. To be sanctified is to receive a second blessing, a baptism of the Holy Spirit, a gift from God, which changes your heart, which reorients your relationship to the triune God and with one another, gives you the capacity to love God and love your neighbor in new and profound ways. In the life of a sanctified person, sin becomes your permanent enemy, not your secret lover. The language of entire sanctification used the word entire in reference to Greek, not Latin. 
In Greek, entire or complete can be improved upon. H.C. Morrison once said, our founder, there is no state of grace that cannot be improved upon. Wesley also said that. It's a new orientation which no longer looks back to the old life, but what it's about really is a reorientation to the new creation. That's your orientation now. A life engulfed by new realities, eschatological realities, not the passing shadows of that which is falling away. And even, by the way, if you were to eradicate every sin in your life through holiness, Wesley would still say you're only halfway there. It's not, a, it's not simply about eradicating sin. It's about producing fruit. It's about the whole joyful work of God's work in the world as we engage the world. It's not legalistic, private, negative, and static at the end of the day. It's relational, communal, captivated by a real vision of God's inbreaking rule and reign in the whole of God's creation. So the witness of the Spirit which confirms faith becomes in Wesley the power of the Spirit to produce fruit and to transform the world to spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Which brings me to the fourth and final Wesleyan distinctive, the Wesleyan view of the world. Our movement has never been committed to a precise theological system which becomes an overlay which we view Scripture through and which we view the world through. The reason we don't have our version of TULIP, Senate of Dort, 1619, is not because we're not clever enough to think of five words, and the first letter of which makes a word. We could actually do it. Many of us have actually worked it out. And that gives you great comfort. But upon reflections, Wesleyans have rejected that kind of systematic overlay which creates a lens between you and Scripture. Praise God for IBS, right? Those systems that create those other overlay, rather than just letting the text speak to us directly, like we teach you here, those systems tend to domesticate the text, sand down all the mysteries, and rob us of all the necessary tensions that are there. It's way too tidy for us. The Wesleyan vision of Christianity is not at root, actually, as a theological system trying to solve theological, theoretical problems. Like everything fit into a single coherent system, which we then launch over against dispensationalism or covenant theology or whatever. No, our movement is a fundamentally missional movement. Our theology is soteriologically framed and moved and, moved and driven, not epistemologically framed and driven. Thus, our theology is really about thrusting us into a lost world. It's acknowledged that scriptures are at root a missional document, which roots the good news of salvation to the ends of the earth, or as Wesley put it, helping people to flee from the wrath to come. That's our system. That's our whole hope as we open the Word of God. Our vision for the world might be called mobile holiness because it's never static. It moves us out to the ends of the earth because the world is our parish. We declare the year of jubilee for those who are enslaved by human trafficking in Bangkok or in Birmingham. Mobile holiness announces the good news to the Alagua people of north-central Tanzania and the 4,600 other people groups without a gospel message. Mobile holiness shines the light on justice and child labor in China. Mobile holiness establishes peace in broken homes in America. Mobile holiness sets the drug addicts free right here in Highbridge. 
Mobile holiness helps us to act on behalf of the 40,000 Iraqis left to die on Sinjar Mountain. You see, mobile holiness is viral, and there's no part of creation which we does not declare under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We claim the whole field. No privatized religion for us. And so when Peter Berger said, accurately said about postmodernity, it made religion now has become privately meaningful and publicly irrelevant, we say that may be what postmodernity says, but that's not our vision of Christianity. We're not simply trying to claim a place for our own private experience. No. Remember how Jeremiah had the courage to purchase a field even as the Babylonians were about to invade and take him into exile. Never forget that, Jeremiah 32. That's the kind of global vision we need to have. We look at the most dismal situation on the planet and we declare in faith, we will buy that field. We look in the look at the, we buy the field of Anatoth as the Babylonians are moving in. We'll buy the field of faith even while the Alagua are still resistant. We buy the field of hope even when the drugs are still holding on. We buy the field of reconciliation even when the divorce papers are on the table. Because we hear the strains of the new creation. We've been caught up in a greater narrative. A Wesleyan neo-holiness vision does not fall into the trap of an over-realized eschatology which fails to take seriously the real human depravity of the world and the sinful force, personal and systemic, that's been unleashed in the world. But we also avoid the trap of an under-realized eschatology which can only rehearse the bad news and does not see the new creation already breaking in to the faith, life, experience, and witness of the church of Jesus Christ. We have a vision for the power of transforming righteousness into the world. In conclusion, it takes courage, a lot of courage, to occupy and hold the high ground of Wesleyan faith. My biggest prayers for myself and for you will be a people with courage. It takes courage to empower, and that God would empower us to announce the gospel, even if it's been decried as outrageous and offensive in a post-Christendom world. It will send us that kind of courage into a world that's enmeshed in deep spiritual and moral chaos. This kind of courage will enable us to descend into the gutter of despair to lift someone up to the high road of holiness. This vision will help us to boldly profess Christ even when big swaths of the church have lost the patience to listen to him. It will enable us to stand firm on the word of God even when the prevailing winds of culture are blowing hard in your face. But like the Taj Mahal, this great treasure has been passed on to us that we in turn might give it to the world. May we joyfully take up this mantle and be found faithful in our time. May Asbury embody that which we teach and so remain a beacon of hope and grace to this generation. Amen.